You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this day. God, thank you for um, the gift of gathering together, Lord, in your name. I pray now that you would bless our time together. I pray that you would open up your word to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be transformed by it. Um, And Lord, we thank you for your servant, Peter. We thank you for the opportunity to look at his life, and we thank you, God, um, for what he shows us about you and about us. And I just pray now, Lord, that you would bless this time exactly in the way that you see fit, and we offer it up to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this is week three of three, looking at the life of Peter. We, I've had a lot of fun looking at Peter. I hope you all have too. But this week, we are looking at the restored Peter. So we started out with looking at Peter as a, as a new follower of Jesus, some of the things that kind of characterized his early walk with the Lord. And then the previous week, we looked at Peter the betrayer. So we looked at what Peter was up to the last week of Jesus' life, including, of course, his big denial of Jesus. This week, we're all post-resurrection Peter. And two things I really hope we pick up in this lesson. One, I hope we see the kind of transformation that happens when you and I have an encounter with the resurrected Lord. Uh, I think Peter helps us answer the question, what does it look like to live in the shadow of the resurrection? And then number two, I hope Peter helps us see what happens when we have an experience where we fall on our face in our sin and are met with the Lord's grace. We're going to see that hopefully really clearly in this beautiful encounter that Peter and Jesus have on the beach in John's gospel. So let's dive right in. First, we're going to look at the story of the resurrection in John's gospel. And so at this point, the last we've seen of Peter has been when? Right, exactly, when he's just denied Jesus. So that was either on Thursday or Friday of Holy Week. It's now Sunday. So y'all just kind of share out loud, what do you think some of the thoughts, mood of Peter was in those two days? What were those two days like for him, you think? Shame is a big one, yes. Despair. Despair. Why would he have been in despair, you think? He lost his Lord. Right, yes, his Lord was crucified. I think Peter probably had to have felt shame and despair are big ones. I also think he probably felt just sh- just so hopeless. You know, his last encounter with Jesus was one where he denied him. And um, he probably thought, well, that was my only chance. And I completely, completely threw it away. Um, so I can imagine that those two days in between the denial and the resurrection were just awful for Peter. And this is where we meet him. Some good news is coming Peter's way. This is what John tells us. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Kind of a weird detail, but we're just going to take that. Um, Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Okay, so at this point, Mary Magdalene comes to Peter and John, and their first thought is not, oh, Jesus must have resurrected from the dead. They think the body's been stolen. That's a more probable option at this point. But Mary Magdalene relays this information that the tomb is empty and Peter and John take off running. And thanks to John's uh, somewhat kind of funny narrative, he we are told he reaches the tomb first. It's interesting to me, though, that John doesn't immediately walk into the empty tomb. Peter does first, then John follows him. Now we're told that it's only John, though, who sees and believes. We're not told if Peter believes at this point. So another question I want to pose to y'all is, okay, so Peter is at the empty tomb and he's walking in and he's looking around. Jesus isn't there. The linen cloths are not, are, are there. Jesus is not. What do you think Peter's thoughts were at this point? What's maybe going through his mind? Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Yeah. What kind of conspiracy? I think that's totally, that's what I would have been thinking for sure. Yes. This can't. This can't be real. This has got to be a hoax. I, I think there's probably a part of Peter that's thinking, if if it's really true that Jesus has risen from the dead, that's just too good to be true. I can't even go there yet. What's interesting, though, is that Luke, in his account, tells us that it's just Peter that runs to the tomb. John's not with him. And Luke tells us that Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping to look in, He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, we're still not told that Peter believed. So I think that the state of Peter at this point is just, this this can't be real. He's maybe not even letting himself hope that it could be real. All right, so next we're going to move to this other scene in John. This is a couple days later. And at this point, Peter has seen the empty tomb. He's also been in the room with Thomas and the other disciples. Y'all remember what happens in this scene? What, what goes on in the room with Thomas? Yes. Yes. The disciples are gathered together. Jesus comes and stands among them and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy spirit. Now we're not told that Peter's not there. Hello. So I'm going to assume that Peter was there. So at this point he's seen the empty tomb. He'd seen Jesus breathe on them and receive the Holy Spirit. And he's seen Jesus say, Thomas, yeah, put your, put your finger into my side. You can do it. So, but at this point, as far as we know, Peter has had no personal interaction with Jesus. I don't want to read too much into the text, but I wonder if Peter was avoiding Jesus because he's just so deeply ashamed of his denial. But now Peter and Jesus are about to meet face to face. So this is what we read in John 21. Okay, so after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. 
They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, so here we are by the Sea of Tiberias, the exact same sea where Peter walked out to Jesus on the water, the same sea where initially the disciples did not recognize Jesus when they called to him. And so we've got a similar scene going on. Remember, Peter and his, and his brothers were fishermen, so they're just having a normal day out on the sea fishing. They're not having any luck. And Jesus calls to them and he says, children. A cool, a cool thing is that this word children is better translated as like, bros, dudes, friends. I love that. I think that's so so awesome that Jesus is saying like, hey guys, what's up? Um, do you have any fish? And initially, like I said, they don't recognize him. But then Jesus does something similar to what he's done before. Um, think back to this account that we saw week one with Peter, where similar thing, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter and his disciples are fishing. They're not having any luck. And Jesus says, pull out your net a little deeper. And then what happens? Yes, exactly. It's a miracle. They catch a whole bunch of fish. So much that the net tears. Ah, that's an interesting little tidbit right there. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. So, but this time the net does not break. I don't know what to do with that. You can think about that when you go home. Um, okay, so this time, same thing. Jesus gives them fishing advice and it works. And I, I love that Jesus does this. I think maybe Jesus is doing two things here. One, Jesus is saying, friends, dudes, I got you. I'm, I'm the God that's always going to provide for you. Yes, amen. At my word, there is provision. There is plenty of fish to be had. A second thing, though, I think Jesus is doing is I think he's trying to tell his disciples, hey, dudes, the same Jesus that created this miracle before, this fishing miracle, it's me. I think he's calling them back to that initial relationship they had, particularly Peter, because Peter was the one that's really a central character in that first story. So I think Jesus is trying to get their wheels spinning. He's trying to say, remember the Jesus that has been with you from the very beginning. It's, it's the same Jesus that's with you right now. And, and they've learned. They're not giving him a hard time for not helping with the, you know, when the boat was about to swamp right yes that's a really good observation yes we we do see some brief sanctification thanks be to god in the life of the disciples um and so john john gets it he gets what jesus is doing he says it is the lord man what a what a a profound statement and now 
Peter gets it too. And what's Peter's response when he hears, it is the Lord? Get to him as fast as he can. Yeah, he tears off his outer garment. What does that word outer garment remind you all of, by the way? The garment Jesus wore when he got down. During the Last Supper, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Yes, we're told in John, maybe in all the Gospels, I'm not sure, that Jesus took off his outer garment to wash the disciples' feet. Now Peter has his outer garment and he throws himself into the sea and he cannot get to Jesus any faster. Now this is worth our consideration, I think. Why why was Peter so desperate to get to Jesus? What'd you say, Dr. Hull? Mm, mm, he wants to make things right. That sounds like our boy Peter, doesn't it? Always wanting to make things right. What else do y'all think is going on? Why is Peter just ready to throw himself into the sea and get as fast as he can to Jesus? Because he felt close. Yeah. Even though he went and denied him three times, it came back and pierced his heart even harder that he needed Jesus. Yes. Oh, that is that is it. He needed Jesus. He knew that the best thing for Peter was to get as close as possible with the very Jesus he had betrayed. He, it, this, is, this is the moment, I think, for Peter where he realizes, I am a sinner and I need Jesus. He cannot wait to get back with Jesus. He cannot wait to be met by Jesus and his mercy and his grace. And I, I said this last week when we were looking at Peter's betrayal, but I want to—I think it's worth saying again that this is why it's one of the best things actually that can happen to us is when we have a fall on our face moment like Peter had, because that's kind of the beginning point of what it looks like to follow Jesus. When we have this moment where we come to ourselves and we realize, oh my gosh, I have completely, completely turned my back on God. I've sinned against him. I've fallen on my face. And thanks be to God, he's calling to me on the shore. And I can throw myself upon him and run to him and get to him as quick as I can. So I, I think in this moment, Peter is actually such a beautiful picture of what it means like to be a disciple. To be someone that realizes that we are in desperate need of Jesus. And we throw ourselves into the sea and run to him as fast as we can. And when Peter gets to, gets to the shore, what's Jesus doing? I love this. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's making them breakfast. He's with his dudes, remember? He they're they're hanging out, having a meal. They Jesus is literally preparing a table in the presence of his former enemies, like it says in Psalm 23. He's providing them fellowship. He's feeding them. I mean, he's meeting their physical needs. Remember they'd been fishing all night. They had to have been hungry. Um so I, I love it. It's something so simple and yet it's so classic Jesus saying, "Let me take care of you. Let me welcome you back into fellowship with myself." All right, notice particularly in verse 9, on what is Jesus cooking? A charcoal fire. Now you might think, okay, cool, cool detail on John's part, but I think this is very intentional. Because does anyone remember, think back to Peter's denial. He's standing outside the courtyard, and what are we telling? Isn't that cool? Yeah, Peter is standing around what outside of the courtyard when he denies Jesus? A charcoal fire. Now, is that not cool or what? <laughs> Almost like the Bible is true, you guys. Almost like the Bible was written intentionally. I, I love it. Um, okay, so charcoal fire. Keep that in mind because denial is going to be important as we move into this next scene. 
Okay, John 21. This is a big moment between Peter and Jesus. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Okay, so this is a really important exchange between Jesus and Peter. And I want to look at it three ways. Jesus' question, Peter's response, and then Jesus' charge. So, easy, easy question number one. What is Jesus' question to Peter? Do you love me? Right. And let's just remind ourselves, I know we all know this, but when Jesus, the very Son of God, asks a question, is it because he's at, he needs information? No. He knows everything, as Peter reminds us. So, Jesus is in the business of doing surgery on our hearts, and typically he does that through asking us questions to get us thinking. And I love, too, that he refers to, to Peter as Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. It's almost like he's reminding Peter, I've known you for a long time, Peter. You and I, we go way back, even to when, before I renamed you Cephas, the rock, all the way back to when you were nobody, just Simon, son of John. I, I know you, Peter. And his question is, do you love me more than these? Um, I, most commentators think that Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these other disciples? I think that probably checks out. And so that's, that's Jesus' question for Simon. Not because Jesus doesn't know the answer. But here's what is key, you guys. How many times does Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? Three, thrice, yes. How many times had uh, Peter denied Jesus? Three, yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. Very intentional on Jesus's part. I feel very confident about that. For every one of Simon's, of, of Peter's denials, Jesus is offering him a chance of restoration. Where Peter's sin abounded, the grace of the Lord abounded all the more, as we're told in Romans. Jesus is saying to Peter, you can't outrun my love for you. Even though you've turned your back on me, not just once, not just twice, but thrice, I am offering you a chance of restoration because I love you and I want to be in a relationship with you. So it's a really, really beautiful picture of the way that Jesus relates to our sin. We can never out the grace of Jesus because he's always ready to meet us there with an opportunity for restoration. And keep in mind, too, that this is on the other side of the cross. So Peter's sin, Peter's denial has been paid for. Jesus has died. He's bled. He has had his, um, his side pierced. Yes. I mean, he, he was tortured. And then he rose again. So this side of the cross, 
this isn't just some arbitrary restoration that Jesus is offering Peter. He is really, really, really forgiven because Jesus has just gone to the cross for him. And now let's look at Peter's answer. This is so interesting to me because I've always read this passage as, is Peter kind of rolling his eyes. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. And then he's grieved. Yes, I, you know I love you. And sure, some of that might be going on with Peter. But I, I got to give a shout out to Don Carson. In his commentary on John, he makes a really good point. That let's, let's flash back to Peter like when he's first following Jesus. Do you think if Jesus were to ask him, Simon Peter, do you love me? What, what, what would be a typical Peter response based on what we've seen these past three weeks? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, I love you so much. I'll go run a marathon for you or I'll go, I'll go get some more fishes and loaves for you. Jesus, let me prove my love to you. Let me show you just how better I am than all the disciples. Yes. I definitely love you more than John. I definitely love you more than Andrew. Definitely. Um, I can't think of any more disciples right now. Um, but yeah, this time Peter's not doing that. He, he's saying that his love for the Lord is based on the Lord's knowledge of him, right? Yes, you know that I love you. It's not let me prove how much I love you. It's let me rest in the fact that you know that I love you. I think that's a really interesting thing to think about in, in Peter's response here. And again, through these multiple questions that Jesus is asking, the truth of Peter's love for the Lord is being woven into his heart even more and more. And some commentators will point out that there's two different words for love exchanged in this passage. We've got agape love, which is um, sacrificial, um, deep love, versus phileo love, which is like friendship love. You, you can phileo things, but not agape them. Um, it's easy to phileo something, not necessarily to agape something. Anyways, um, I think there's something maybe going on there, but also a commentator pointed out that John does that a lot actually throughout his gospels, just kind of flip agape and phileo for stylistic reasons. So that might be a fun little homework assignment for y'all. Go back and read this passage looking at the different uses of love, but we're not gonna, we don't have time to go into that, unfortunately. Okay. Oh, this is a quote from um, this great book I read by um, Sammy Rhodes. He is a RUF campus pastor who just has a great um, ministry and he's written a couple books and he wrote a book about the gospel of John and this is what he says about this scene he's the God of second chances Jesus obviously not chances to prove ourselves chances to return to him again to confess what we regret and to feel him pick us up and to put us on our feet that we might walk with him again by the shore is not beautiful he's the God of second chances not of chances to prove ourselves but of chances to be picked back up again um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the story that happens immediately after this, but does anyone know what happens literal seconds later after this beautiful picture with Peter and Jesus? Peter wants to know about John. Right, yes. Which reminds me, I forgot our third part of this section. Jesus is charge of Peter. Peter has some, excuse me, Jesus has some words for Peter. He says... You know, one day someone's going to take you where you do not want to go. You will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. He's predicting Peter's death, Peter's crucifixion. And this is a big theme that's going to follow Peter the rest of his life, suffering. 
But notice it's not pointless suffering because we're told this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Jesus has this charge for Peter. You will, you will do great things. Out of your renewed love for me, I'm asking you to feed my lambs and tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. And also, Peter, your life is not going to be void of suffering. You will go, you will die a pretty rough way, but it's not going to be pointless. It is going to glorify God. If you read through First and Second Peter, suffering is a really big theme in Peter's life. And I have to think that that's kind of this prediction of his death is hanging over his head as he's carrying out his apostolic ministry. Okay, so yes, this scene ends and then John walks by. And what does Peter ask Jesus? Does anyone know? I'll put it up there just to help you out. In 20, verse 21. So what about this man? Yeah, I, I really love this. I especially love that this happens sentences after this beautiful moment with Peter and Jesus. He has been met with the Lord's grace. He's been told that he will feed my lambs. He's, Jesus has commanded Peter to follow him. And then John walks by, and the old Peter is immediately back because he's like, what about this guy, huh? What, what, what are you going to do with him? Is he going to die a death to glorify you? And I love Jesus' response. What is that to you? You follow me. Man, I need that told to me every single day. What is that to you that, that so-and-so got this thing that you wanted? You follow me. What is that to you that um, so-and-so was hurtful to you? You follow me. I, I think it's beautiful that Peter's been restored, and yet Peter, we see, is still clearly deeply flawed. He's still got a lot of Peter left in him because he's caring about other people. Yes. Uh, that's why I love Peter so much. I just r- relate to him all too deeply. Okay, we're going to move on to Acts. And context-wise, Jesus has ascended. And Pentecost has come. What happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit pours down. Yes, it's a big, big, big watershed moment for the church. And all of Jesus' followers are gathered together in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit descends, and Peter gives this momentous sermon. Um, It's really long. We're just going to look at a couple verses that I think are telling of, of the transformed Peter. Remember, this is kind of where I really think we see Peter as someone that is living in light of the resurrection and that's living in light of being restored by the grace of Jesus. This is this is Peter 2.0, if you will. Okay, so this is what Jesus, excuse me, this is what Peter says after Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
Okay, a couple things I want us to notice about Peter in this sermon in Acts. One, Peter is just really, really bold now. This is really cool to me that Peter had gone from not even being able to admit that he knew Jesus to a little servant girl. And now he's saying, men of, men of Nazareth, men of Israel, hear these words. Know for certain that Jesus was God and that he was crucified. That he's, he's staking his life on these truths that he once now denied. In the light of the resurrection, Peter is emboldened. Because Peter, remember, he has physically walked into that empty tomb. He's seen Jesus resurrected on the shore. And he knows that if the resurrection is true, then God is trustworthy. God is a God worth staking our lives on. God is a God worth following. God is a God worth proclaiming. And this is what I think is helpful for us to remember. Thanks be to God, through the witness of the scriptures, we ourselves have walked into that empty tomb. Obviously not physically, but we know for certain that the resurrection happened. And so what kind of boldness could we maybe then live with in the shadow of the resurrection, knowing that, yep, Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead. How might that embolden us in our faith? Peter, I think, is finally a model for us here of, of what that looks like. You know, another thing, too, is notice just kind of the natural evangelism that flows out of an encounter with Jesus. Peter reminds us that when we get face-to-face -face with the Lord, when we have an experience where we fall on our face and then are met with the Lord's grace, we can't help but talk about him. We can't help but want other people to know this Jesus for themselves and to repent and be baptized. Another thing, too, you'll notice this if you were to look at the whole sermon that Peter gives at Pentecost. There's a lot of emphasis on Jesus as the crucified Lord, this Jesus whom you crucified, crucified, crucified. Why do y'all think that Peter had this emphasis on the crucifixion? Well, it resonates with his shame. Mm, yes, I think that's a big part of it, yes. I mean, because if it resonates with his shame, that means Peter understands the necessity of the crucifixion. Remember when Peter was walking with Jesus and Jesus said many times to Peter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to suffer and I'm going to have to die. And Peter was like, no, you will not. I will not have that in my Lord. Now, restored Peter realizes that, yeah, the crucifixion was necessary. And it was necessary because people are like me and they're sinners. And if the crucifixion didn't happen, our sins aren't atoned for. So now what Peter had once vehemently denied, he is... He's putting great trust and confidence in that we have a crucified Lord, a crucified Lord who was resurrected. Um, I think that's a really cool part of, of this side of Peter. And now this is just something worth noting. I mean, look at the work the Lord is already doing through Peter. How many souls were saved in one day? 3,000. That's pretty miraculous. Yeah, I mean, Peter shows us a lot, and one of the things he definitely shows us is that God is in the business of using sinful people for really redemptive purposes. 3,000 souls in one day, and in Acts, things are happening like this left and right through the work of Peter in the, in the church. Okay, so that, that's Peter in Acts, and to keep us moving on, does anyone have any comments at this point? I've been talking a lot. One, Please. I was, I was thinking about the, the change in Peter and his boldness. <laughs> Mm. This isn't Peter right. on his own speaking truth. Yes. It, it can't be. Mm. On my own, I would fail every time. I wouldn't have enough faith or boldness or 
Yes. Amen, Forsyth. Yeah, so that is such an important, important point that Peter Peter is only emboldened and empowered through the work of the Holy Spirit, which is now in him as a result of what just happened at Pentecost. I guess it was in him before, too, when Jesus breathed on them. But yes, um, that's what I love about Peter is that we're actually going to see this in the next story, that yes, Peter does have a transformation, and at the same time, he's really the same Peter that he always was. And that's good news because it's a reminder that God's always at work in us through the Holy Spirit. We will fall back into our old ways. We'll live life in the flesh, but God is still still working in us. And thanks be to God, even Peter's can have moments like this through the work of the Holy Spirit. And remember what we talked about last week that Jesus is praying for Peter, that his faith would not fail. I think that's probably a result of this too. So yes, huge shout out to the Holy Spirit. Couldn't do it without him. Okay, so this this next passage in Galatians. So this this happens in the Acts time frame, but Paul is now writing about it in Galatians. And this is what we're told about our guy, Peter. This is a really good reminder for us of Peter's not perfect. Far from it. So this is what Paul has to say. Um, context real quick. Remember in uh, Acts 15, they hold the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, they designate that Peter is going to be the apostle to the who? Yes, to the Gentiles. Yes. He will go to the Gentiles. Yes. And then um, Paul will go to the Jews. So that, that's been established in Acts 15. Did I get that wrong? Peter, Paul with the Gentiles, Peter with the Jews. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, that's important going into this going into this passage. Okay, so now here's what's happening. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Paul. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when they saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, so here Peter is. He's hanging out with the Gentiles. And Peter is a Jew. And when the circumcision party comes in, other Jewish people, what does Peter do? He stops eating with the Gentiles. Yes, yes. And why do y'all think that is? Jewish law. Jewish law is for sure a part of it, yes. Social ostracization. Yes. Exactly. Peter is like, oh, I can't let these other Jews see me eating with the Gentiles. Heaven forbid. And so Peter's fear of man kicks right back in. Peter cares. One thing you see a lot in Peter is that he cares a lot about what people think about him. And so now that the Jews are coming, I always think of this as like a middle school lunchroom scene. Um, Now that the Jews are walking into the lunchroom, Peter, the middle schooler, is like, I can't be seen with these lamos. And um, exactly, exactly. And he separates himself. And that doesn't have a great domino effect. It's not, it's not the kind of witnessing we just saw in Acts. So, again, to me, this is a hopeful reminder that, again, God is always transforming us. God's got a lot of work to do. And thanks be to God, that work will not be completed until we meet him face to face. But it's a really helpful reminder that even, even the rocks, even Peter's, 
crumble. And we, and you know, we don't know what happened after this story. I don't know how Peter responded to Paul's rebuke, but I have to think that the restored Peter probably said something like, you're right, Paul. Yeah, that was not great of me. And I wonder if he turned in repentance to the Lord, whereas the old Peter might have justified himself or denied what he did. Um, it's just a, it's a great picture of kind of the process of sanctification that is much more um, wonky than it is linear. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to end um, reading from 1 Peter. So this is now, we're kind of like in the 60s A.D., and I would really encourage y'all to read First and Second Peter. You can probably read them both. I mean, depending on how fast you're going, they're not long books, but they're really, really rich books. Especially if you've been following along with these classes, it's kind of fun to read First and Second Peter knowing the Peter that we've been looking at for these past three weeks. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, but this, I just want to leave us with this passage from First Peter 1. And as I read, note some of the themes that we see in Peter's life coming up in his writing to, he's writing to Gentiles that are um, dispersed in Asia Minor that are um, undergoing persecution. So what Peter says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, emphasis on the resurrection, from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So to close us out, I mean, I've, I've got some things I could say, some kind of closing remarks about what Peter tells us about Jesus and about our sinful human nature. But what are some things that y'all would say? What, what does Peter show us about God, about Jesus, about ourselves? Agreed. Definitely agreed, Reese. Yes. It's it's a reminder that we are never too far from the Lord's grace. We can never sin too much. No sin is too great for a match for his mercy. It's really good. For those fallible people out there. I feel I feel they need to hear this. <laughs> what else? Yes, yes. Relationship, not winning. Yes, Jesus doesn't want our good deeds. He wants our hearts. Peter often, and I, often miss that. I think there are two instances of, like, emphasizing the perishable nature of what we've got going on on earth, like cars and houses and bank accounts and all that crap. Yeah. Yes. Peter, I mean, I think Peter is often torn between the perishable and the imperishable what he desires. Yeah, that's really good. He knows that his hope is living in heaven. It's not here on earth. You know, I think Peter is also just a hopeful reminder. I've said this, but 
God, God uses prideful, insecure, disobedient, lazy, um, self-justifying sinners for his redemptive purposes. I mean, 3,000 souls in one day. Um, we are here because of Peter. In a lot of ways, he was the rock on which the church was built. Um, so that, that's a hopeful reminder for me, that just because I am deeply flawed, deeply sinful, deeply disobedient, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can still use us. Well, and he's speaking directly to us because he's talking, you know, you did not see him, yet you believe in him. Yes. He's talking to men and women who never saw the human Jesus right. when he walked like us. Yes, yes. But and we still can believe. Exactly, yeah. Peter, Peter knows that we have the same living hope that he does. Right. Hmm. Well, I think that's a good place to end. I'll pray, and then, of course, feel free to um, chat, ask questions. All right, let's pray. Father God, um, thank you so much for your servant, Peter. Um, Lord, thank you for your word that's preserved um, a really faithful narrative of his life. And Lord, we thank you that the same Peter that met, the same Jesus that met Peter on the shore is the same Jesus that's with us now through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, we thank you for your restoration and your mercy, your redemption. Lord, thank you that um, you are a good God to us sinners. Um, Father, pray that um, you would bless us and keep us as we go into this new week. May we abide in you, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.